Hello, and welcome to Future of London City Bites podcast. I'm Lisa Taylor, Executive Director of Future of London and Director of Coherent Cities. This episode of the Learning from Crisis Connections series is on the evolving relationship between culture and place. You'll hear how people are mitigating the damage to the creative sector, how society, government, and the markets are reassessing culture's value, and what aspects of this changing world could be with us for the long term. In cases like the South Bank Center, culture creates and defines place. Normally, audiences flock to these destinations, but so do people who just want somewhere inviting to be. Now, too many big venues stand empty, and the generally sensible move to diversify funding and rely less on grant is having awful consequences. At the other end of the spectrum, individual artists and behind-the-scenes freelancers face an economic cliff edge. What help has been coming is often from each other. Somewhere between the two lies the role of public art, beautifying barriers, making statements, cheering us up, and starting to claim more space in high street and regeneration thinking. Today's guests work across these scales. Gillian Moore is Director of Music at the South Bank Centre. She's been bringing music and the arts to London and international audiences for more than 35 years, including efforts to integrate education and the arts. She's been awarded an MBE and a CBE for services to music and writes and broadcasts regularly. Ada Esposito is founder director of Creative Thinking. She works with public and private sector clients on cultural strategy and co-leads the Tottenham Creative Enterprise Zone. Through the pandemic, Ada has been advocating for creative workers and connecting councils with artists and SMEs, both to generate work and to help reimagine town centers and neighborhoods. Paul Ogard is an award-winning placemaking strategist, specializing in socioeconomic and cultural regen for mixed communities with a focus on resilience. He's an associate at Coherent Cities and WorkWild, a board member of arts charities Akava and Up Projects, and was instrumental in the creation of Poplar Works. Over the summer, he helped direct the £1.5 million Creative Workspace Resilience Fund. So um, the first thing for all of us is uh, it's been obviously a really rough six months for everyone. Um, what impacts have you seen over the last six months and how have those evolved? I'll go first uh, to Gillian. Well, the COVID-19 pandemic has been devastating for the, for the arts, for the cultural sector in general both for the big institutions and some of the smaller ones, and also really crucially for artists, um, the majority of whom are freelance, for performers, for visual artists. It's been absolutely devastating. We are in the business, in the arts, especially in the performing arts, of bringing large numbers of people together um, in congregation uh, to have an experience uh, jointly, um, to watch very often large numbers of people performing to them. And that's the one thing we just can't do and we still can't do six months into this. So it's meant huge loss of income. In the South Bank Centre's case, it's well documented. We've lost 25 million pounds in this year um, of our income. We've very sadly had to make um, numbers of staff redundant, people who just can't work, for whom there is no work while the venues are closed to the public. Um, I'll talk later about Glimmers of Hope, but it's it's a devastating um, event for the arts and something that I don't think any of us could have predicted. That's very true. I think uh, one of the questions I'd had for you, perhaps more than the other two as well, is did government's eventual slug of support uh, make a difference? Well, we, of course, welcome uh, the government's recovery fund um, in recognition of the quite unique challenges felt by 
the arts and cultural sector. I mean, I think it's true that during this time, and the government has recognised this, that people have turned to the arts. I mean, that's the irony. People have turned to poetry, to reading, to music, um, streaming music, watching films um, online. People need the arts more than ever. So it's really important that the, that the arts are in a robust place to, uh, to bring us out of recovery, a bit like I would say after the Second World War with the kind of settlement then when the Arts Council was funded, when the South Bank was, um, was born, as it were, with the Festival of Britain. Um, we're really encouraged by um, some statements that have come out. However, this, you know, the, the, the cultural intervention, South Bank, like many other organisations, has applied for funds, but that won't stop. Um, the uh, redundancies because we are already, by the time this came in, we were already in a stage where if this goes on much longer, which it looks like it will, um, there isn't work for people to do and we can't keep people on indefinitely, just as has happened very sadly also in uh, the, uh, the sectors such as hospitality and uh, travel and tourism. Thanks, Gillian. Um, Ada, I'm going to come to you next. Uh, the question there when we met in, in June about immediate economic recovery, um, you talked about who was in the sector. Perhaps you weren't considering everybody who was involved in the creative sector. What kind of workers should we be considering when we're looking at the impact over the six months and moving forward? I, I think quite naturally, we thought immediately of artists, of musicians, um, of theatre performers, actors. Um, but as things got worse and as the situation went on, what we came to understand, unfortunately, quite viscerally, was that actually there's an incredible ecology that sit behind what I call first tier artists and practitioners, i.e. the ones that you might know about or see on a regular basis. We're talking about costume designers, we're talking about stage setters, we're talking about sound engineers, we're talking about roadies, uh, who go on uh, and support uh, touring bands. We're talking about an incredible ecology of full-time, part-time, freelance, skilled workers, incredibly skilled, specialised workers being absolutely decimated by the last six months. Paul, one of the things is you, you, you help guide two arts charities. I mean, and, and one of them to do specifically with space, but there's been an assumption that the, you know, the smaller outfits are just immediately going to pack up and die. But from what I understand, they have some survival strategies. What are you seeing and what are you involved with? Yeah, I mean, to echo Gillian to start with, it's been battle stations for the last six months. Um, you know, dried up revenues and commissions cancelled and regen projects and events cancelled um, whilst overheads continue. The organisations I've been working with, yeah, giving notice uh, on offices, losing staff. And uh, Gillian's right, that public sector money has been welcome. Sometimes it's been slow and it won't stop everything. But um, the uh, I sat on... Um, Creative Land Trust Resilience Panel, which was distributing the mayor's um, one and a half million to creative workspaces in London. And I have to say, my massive takeaway from it was just the immense commitment of the sector towards the creative practitioners and the work itself. Immediately come uh, March, it was rent holidays, uh, and, and rent windows, service charge waivers, hardship funds that already existed within their setups um, were boosted and made more accessible. 
business advice was put in place immediately for creative practitioners to pivot uh, and look at different ways of either uh, marketing themselves and selling or indeed reshaping their businesses. And I think there's something there which is a real, a real lesson around protection of tenant base. Now, I think the sector would probably say they didn't, they didn't do it for business reasons. They did it for altruistic reasons and, 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 and to, to strengthen the, the broader creativity. But actually, it's been really good business. So from my experience, and there are, there are, there are many exceptions, I'm sure, but private landlords holding space haven't, on the whole, been very flexible at all, have occasionally offered rent windows, um, but those that rent generally needs to be repaid after the fact. They couldn't uh, carry out evictions anyway. So that pressure is only just kicked down the road and will be so extreme, it will crack many tenants anyway. But where they'll end up with, of course, is uh, a lot of commercial space and no big market queue for, 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 for people to come and take those. And I think what the creative workspace sector have done really cleverly, actually, is support that market, support that base. So as and when we come out of this, they will still have a strong market and a strong set of tenants. Whereas I suspect within certain parts of the private sector, that won't be the case and they won't have built that strength. Thanks for that. Um, some really good points. And I was going to come to Ada, but I saw um, Gillian nodding about that as well, this um, connection with supporting. What was it that um, sort of caught your attention there, Gillian, in terms of what Paul was saying? It's interesting that in many ways, the arts organizations, if we talk about organizations for a moment, that are the most vulnerable in this are the ones who have decreased their reliance on public subsidy and increased their reliance on earned income. Um, so currently an organisation like the South Bank, all we have this year is our Arts Council grant because all the earned income is not there. So it was previously absolutely viewed as a good thing to decrease public subsidy to get in as we have at the South Bank, you know, cafes and restaurants and um, have commercial hires for conferences and all of that to support the arts programme. Um, and, you know, we, that's what we've done and um, have really reduced our uh, reliance on public subsidy. But of course, in a situation like this, that is not something that is, you know, we, we have, of course, had to be as kind as we possibly can to our commercial tenants. Um, and we hope they'll come back and revive and stay healthy. But it's, it, it's interesting that continental Europe, which has a much higher public subsidy um, model for the arts, you know, they're fine because they're not thinking, oh my goodness, is the, is the burger bar going to go bust or be able to make their rent? They're just thinking, actually, yes, we're doing our great art and the government is supporting us because it's part of the, the contract that we have uh, with society. So uh, I just think it's interesting that uh, what we thought previously in another world uh, was a virtue um, is actually turned out to be a problem for many organisations. Thanks, Gillian. Um, Ada, when we spoke, you talked about this. You had encouraged people as a creative strategist to diversify. Um, what's been happening with that? Absolutely. I mean, I, I spent half my career uh, talking to arts organisations and artists about diversifying their um, 
the, the, their risk portfolio in so many ways and, and their profit-making portfolios. Uh, and that was everything from opening a bar in your premises if you were a theatre to offer pre or, or post-theatre drinks through to leasing out your staff's expertise uh, for uh, the, the speaker circuit and, and educational purposes, et cetera, et cetera. Ironically, as Gillian's rightly said, a lot of these mechanisms whereby organisations were able to make additional funding uh, commitments and, and uh, increase their finances considerably in some instances, actually, um, were all closed all at the same time. So there wasn't even a step change uh, in opportunity, I guess. And that has been devastating for many organisations. Having said that, some organisations and accepting that a lot of the organisations I'm referring to here are smaller organisations, so a little bit more fleet of foot, possibly able to pivot a little bit more quickly than a larger organisation like the South Bank, um, although not exclusively the case, um, as evidenced by somewhere like Ali Pali. Some operators have been using their buildings for alternative purposes, from supporting food charities and getting food distribution vehicles out, uh, through to... Um, hiring out or loaning out their, their kitchens from the cafes and bars that are closed so people can make food uh, for those same purposes, hosting uh, necessary stockpiling of charity goods, of, of things like that. So I think in some instances, organisations have been able to pivot slightly and use their venues um, in different ways to help respond to the crises. And some businesses have been better than others at being able to respond. So I think last time we spoke about someone like Fashion Enter in Herringay, who pivoted their, their fashion manufacturing factories to make PPE kit, very, very much needed in the first couple of months of the pandemic. So we're able to use their skills, expertise and machinery for another purpose that was helping a wider societal need. So I think there are some great examples like that that we are seeing. Certainly, as we continue down this track, we all know how exorbitantly expensive it is to open venues like theatres if they're not operating, if they're not able to operate at full capacity. Lots of people have gone on record in the media speaking about the cost of that being so prohibitive that actually organisations need to stay closed. But I think within that, there are some opportunities and the onus is on all of us to think about how we can help bring those venues back to life because the reality is we as society need those venues we rely on them as places we go to as living rooms in our city to enjoy so i, th I think there's a there's a real imperative for us both within the sector within government and beyond to think laterally and innovatively about how we can help those venues open up maybe not for their full intended purpose but so that they are part of society and we can use them again in some capacity Thanks, Ada. Um, I'm going to come to Gillian eventually because the, uh, the living room is South Bank Centre in a way, and you had some interesting ideas about taking culture out to areas. But I wanted to go to Paul because we're talking about numbers and economic realities here. You do a lot of work with councils, as does Ada, and trying to make the case for an economic connection between culture and place and the, the vibrancy of an area. What are you working on? What are you seeing? And, and can we make that case? It's a case that we we should be making loudly and very, very proudly. I think it was last year we topped the 100 billion the creative industries gave to the, the UK uh, uh, economy with 50 billion, I think it was in London. Fashion alone was 28 billion. The scale economically of the creative industry's input to the economy is extraordinary. Um, so part of it, I think, is getting better at selling that, getting making that economic case. The other point, though, I think, is making the case more strongly about the power of cultural identity. So you think of Stoke and Potteries or Nottingham and uh, Lace and Wakefield and Textiles and the, the man in the street citing those as a really important 
part of their understanding of themselves and they and the place they live in and hence a huge sense of loss that's come about because of because of those industries moving on and that's powerful not just in terms of losing voters and that's you know uh, it happened in that way but also a sense of uh, a community's aspiration and and, and front-footedness and um, and that kind of power needs to be put i think alongside an economic power to say yes it's nice yes these are our living rooms yes this is how we relax in many ways but also huge economic driver and huge cultural identity driver and those two those two uh, columns i think essentially are those that hold up society um thank you for that um, ada's sort of waiting to put her hand up and then i want to come to jillian also who had a point in our prep chat about democratization so ada what did you want to add i just wanted to add that what we've seen through this pan pandemic um in particular i think is the better the places we live the better and healthier we, healthier we are as society. We, we've seen the evidence and we've also seen the gaps actually with people who have outdoor space, people who don't have outdoor space, people's proximity to their local park. Um, we talk about the 15 minute city now, you know, how accessible are our immediately needed amenities to us. Um, I think the economic imperative there for, for both councils, uh, public sector and private sector developers, quite frankly, is to take on board some of the learning and actually there is an economic argument there because if your communities are healthy and happy they're going to be more productive they're going to be more agile they're going to collaborate more they're going to make more money Gillian when we spoke you had made some points about um, health and well-being and the arts and you'd also talked about sharing it out so everything that's just come is, is coming back to you what's the relationship between the arts and how should we build on that one thing that I feel strongly about and I've always believed actually is that we do need to rather lose our obsession with the idea of art, art for art's sake um, in the in the arts industry and um, of course there's a real magic um, and a real truth in what an artist can um, imagine and think and tell us about the world but I think this sort of abstraction of um, what the arts are about in comparison with what it can actually what they can actually do for us um, is you know we we sort of go down that road at our peril and it's a relatively recent idea so um, you know uh, we do know now we've got lots of scientific evidence that singing is good for people's physical and mental health we have lots of evidence about the fact that playing an instrument does the same there has been an amazing recent study which has shown that um older people who are taking part in a dance program um, have an absolutely enormously decreased uh, rate of falls which then cost the nhs um, a great deal of money so the cost of the uh, dance programs are covered many times over um, by this. And I also think that coming out of this uh, period, uh, arts organisations and artists should think even more about um, what could be a different context for us. You know, of course, I want everybody to play at the South Bank and they always will. But South Bank ourselves, you know, we during this time, we've been reaching out to people who are, uh, there's been a lot of talk about digital art online, but one of the most important things I think that my colleagues have been doing at the South Bank is a project called Art by Post, which is reaching some of the 20% of people in this country 
who do not have digital access, who don't own a computer or who can't get online um, and what, getting them to work with artists to write poems and to create paintings and drawings and visual arts. And then we're, we're bringing it back onto the site and some of these are beginning to appear in an outdoor exhibition at the moment. Um, so the idea of getting out there and also I think something that's very exciting is that you know, arts organisations basing themselves in different places. So perhaps, you know, a theatre company in a hospital, there are examples of that. Um, it's just been announced that our, uh, one of our wonderful resident orchestras, the Orchestra of the Age of Enlightenment, will be making its home in Ackland Burley School, a comprehensive school in North London. And they'll just be there. The, the, the kids will be... Um, rubbing shoulders with musicians when they queue up for their dinner they'll be hearing rehearsals they'll be having lessons they'll be coming to the south bank to rehearsals and concerts so that kind of getting the arts back into the fabric of life is something that i think is urgently needed um, there's lots of examples of ingenuity in that but i think it can this period this extraordinary period can really help us accelerate that and invest in that idea that um, i think is really an exciting way to look at it when we talk about one of the questions we have is how do you bounce forward and so on but thinking about um culture and place and how they relate mm -hmm. is really key paul you you've come from placemaking to culture kind of well actually you came from film first but this idea of culture and place um do you see potential for this changing yeah i mean i think both Gillian and are spot on it's um it's about where we are more now so we're we're spending more time in our suburbs and in our estates, in our, in our outer London places. So we're there more, but to Gillian's point, absolutely. This is an opportunity not to lose the institutions, but to ensure that cultural activity and creativity happens everywhere. And actually people expect to see culture at the Royal Festival Hall. Um, it's, it's suffuse with it. Um, and another piece therefore, uh, I question the amount of impact that has, whereas um, a piece of culture put in the middle of a, a district centre with a with a very localised market, with a with a 50% Bangladeshi population, um, with a high level of child uh, child um, poverty, that kind of that kind of place and that kind of impact is huge and may reach fewer people, but people otherwise not impacted. And I think if we could take that thinking, take what Gillian said about uh, the creative industries being more fluid and being more willing to, to move, take Ada's point about where we are now and spending more time in those, in those places. There's a huge opportunity to, to democratise culture. And I don't just mean outreach. I mean, as Gillian says, doing it properly on people's doorsteps, in people's neighbourhoods. I want to take it back up to scale. This idea of supporting and democratizing art is great um, and having it be local and citizen driven is fabulous. But I mean, Future of London um, and Coherent Cities work on regeneration of areas and there's something to having a big anchor institution or cluster like the South Bank Centre that adds uh, a lot of sort of agglomeration value. I'm wondering, Gillian, what South Bank Centre is thinking about how the nature of the institution and the place might evolve. Well, I guess the, the South Bank, and if, if you take South Bank Centre itself, which is the three concert halls, Festival Hall, um, Queen Elizabeth Hall, Purcell Room, and the Hayward Gallery, and all the outdoor spaces, um, it is 
a kind of embodiment of that sense of place. And if you then add the other institutions along the South Bank, the National Theatre, the Film Theatre, and then going right along that way to the Tate and arguably to the London Eye in the other direction, you know, you have a, an absolutely extraordinary cultural district in an, in an amazing place. A key thing about the South Bank for, I guess, since the 1980s, when um, Ken Livingstone opened it up, during the day, the, the Greater London Council opened it up during the day to be free from 10 o'clock in the morning till uh, 10 o'clock, 11 o'clock at night, um, the foyers and the very architecture itself, you know, going back to 1951 Festival of Britain um, in itself was democratic. The Festival Hall um, in comparison with the great uh, concert halls of Europe and America, like the Carnegie Hall or the Concertgebouw, you know, they've got a grand facade and there's just enough room in the public spaces inside if you want to buy a ticket and maybe buy a glass of wine. But that's it. Um, in the Festival Hall, the, the actual proportions of the architecture, two thirds public space inside to one third concert hall space, transparent you can see in glass walls you can see what's going on inside this huge ballroom and outside these enormous public spaces where people do just wander past and gather and um to your point ada about you know or, or and paul about coming across art in unexpected places we've always tried to do that on the site itself um so the idea that you might just come across Bryn Terville uh, singing um outside with a thousand people or Billy Bragg or, a, um, or a, a young band or a dance program happening on the ballroom and it's all free. Um, something like 40% of what we do at the moment is free. That's really been a, a guiding factor in what we're doing and we're, even, we're doing it even now during this lockdown because there's an outdoor exhibition called Everyday Heroes um, about uh, frontline workers um, which people can just come along and experience for free. But of course, you've got to get there in the first place. You've got to know about it. People do happen across it because they just happen to be wandering along the riverfront with their families or whatever. But we can never take for granted that because we do know that even people who live half a mile away or a mile away, you know, kids who live on local estates, they've not seen the River Thames. So we have to make lots and lots of extra effort to be in different places. Um, and that's something I don't think South Bank's necessarily done enough of. I'd like to see happening more in the future. This idea I was talking about, you know, an orchestra in a school or an art center on an estate. I think that is a really powerful idea for the future. But nonetheless, this, what you call the agglomeration, um, I think that is really important. Um, the idea that world-class culture of all kinds um, is happening every day in these big venues is a really exciting thought. Our duty is to bring it out and to show people and make it as accessible as possible and also to benefit, you know, just thinking of classical music, for example. I think that London is the music capital of the world. Many people say that. Um, I definitely don't think, for example, that all young people growing up in London know that or benefit from it. I think very far from it. One thing that I will and am campaigning for is that the big cultural institutions work together. We're, we're very good at being in competition with each other to bring the best thing, the most glamorous act, the, um, the most phenomenal orchestras um, to our venues. Um, but are we really working together to make sure 
that, for example, the young people of London benefit from that. Or, for example, um, if you are in other ways disenfranchised in London, you are benefiting from that. And also that we are showing all the many voices that we need to in a, in a diverse city such as London. Thanks, Julian. Um, that ties in a way to some work that Ada's been doing. I mean, everyone's a bit hamstrung to a degree in that you have government funding. Um, Ada works with councils, as does Paul. You all work with private sector, so you may be a bit curtailed. But Ada, um, you've got um, the piece of work in Nine Elms that's going on that's making statements, not just you know to disenfranchised people, but from people who've been disenfranchised. Can you talk about that? For the last two years, we have been running uh, the Common Garden Market Vitrine Art Commission, specifically targeting uh, local emerging talent. So artists who are certainly on their way up, who have something very interesting to say, right across 2D art forms. The reason 2D is we use the facade of the Common Garden Market flower market. So that's a 100 metre square space, one of the largest canvases in London, I think, uh, at last count and uh, located right on uh, Nine Arms Lane uh, facing the Thames. So it, it's a huge platform by anyone's definition. And we purposefully, uh, through this commission, look to invite talent that needs that next step up. But what we try to do is for that work to speak of the times. And we had an extraordinary response this year. We actually launched uh, this year's commission, I think right on the cusp of lockdown. And we were incredibly worried that people just wouldn't respond at all. And that artists in particular were so worried about how their next bill was going to be paid, where their next meal was coming from, that they wouldn't have time to even contemplate a commission. We then determined to go ahead with that. And that was uh, very much to the credit of St. Modwin who uh, put forth uh, quite a bit of additional funding to help us uh, champion and open up the competition further uh, to ensure that um, all finalists would be paid a fee to develop their work further before a final selection panel was brought together to choose a work. The work is also a paid commission. So um, what it did offer is an opportunity for artists to earn money during a period where most galleries were shut down and, and most work was, was being pulled, actually. I'm super excited about this work because I feel that it truly does fulfil the ambition of Vitrine, uh, which is to showcase and share and celebrate great contemporary work that has real message behind it. And we can't wait for you all to come past and see it. It will be up for a year, so there's plenty of time to come and see it. And uh, I would challenge anyone to not be overwhelmed and enthralled by what they see. Well, that's definitely something that sort of, we're all sort of ready. And all you have to do is take the train past it or go to it. So, I mean, there's, there's a lot of choices to go and see it. Um, and we will have uh, all the information about links and exhibitions and so on on the website. So you can see that and go and visit as well. Also uh, going on now through the time that this podcast will come out is the London Mural Festival, um, which has, I think, 50 installations around the city. So definitely something worth catching in that sense and very much about place. Um, I'm gonna ask each of you just in terms of um, this idea of technology and we're all online and so forth. I, I think the answer may be a foregone conclusion, but is there a chance that we could just be online and more social media and we just don't need um, physical spaces quite so much? Um, Paul, you're laughing, I'm gonna come to you. So it was all, all just online, everything online from now on, everyone sitting in tiny little boxes and um, I mean, this is lovely, but um, no, I don't think that's a likelihood. Having said that, I think there is a rediscovery of, or a discovery of online as a public space which I think is interesting. 
So um, if I'm allowed to give a little plug to UP projects where I'm a trustee, they've been running a, a project for three or four years now called This is Public Space, which is about online content, which is, which is very powerful. So instead of taking content and putting it online, really understanding um, online as a, as a public space that people can interact with and walk through and, and, and enjoy. And I think that's interesting. I think it's interesting, firstly, because there's, a, there's obviously a push towards that, but also there is a question about how audiences um, can relate better to online now, not just through the power of the uh, National Theatre Online uh, live or, or, or interacting more in that way, but also just, just to start, just to maybe, you know, the pandemic has got us over uh, a hump, which is uh, allowing us to see um, online as public space. In the prep chat, Julie and I spoke about the power of audience as well. So online is a public space, absolutely. But you had a quite particular response to something that's very different from COVID. What was that? Uh, just last week, I sought out a, a short video I'd done for the South Bank. I think it was at the start of the year. It was just before we'd heard the words COVID-19. And uh, I was talking, I was sitting, the video has me sitting in an empty Royal Festival Hall, all on my own, and the camera pans out. And um, in fact, there's a drone shot of all the 3,000 seats. And I'm talking about the power of the live experience of sitting in a big auditorium with 3,000 other people. Um, and the fact that it's all about this congregation, this joint experience, even if you're focusing down on one solo pianist on the big stage of the festival hall, and that people are almost... 3,000 people, I say, are almost breathing together. And I've watched it and I like shuddered at that thought. I mean, it's like exactly the opposite of what we um, are allowed to do or able to do now, how the world has changed in so short a time. But of course, I can't wait to get back to that. Um, in the meantime, though, we are uh, the next best thing, I think, um, and in some ways, to speak to Paul's point, the, it also has some advantage, is that we are bringing the musicians together this autumn. So the walls of the Royal Festival Hall will be resonating to music being performed there. We're going to do 31 orchestral concerts, which will all be online. We're going to have some a talks programme. We're going to have some gigs, hopefully some comedy that's not confirmed yet, all going out into the online space and what that's about is keeping a connection with those people who will hopefully come back and breathe together with other people when it's safe to do so um, but also we're keeping those musicians those artists those writers working and doing what they do and that's really vital because we do not want our musicians going off and being delivery drivers or house painters because then we we could very quickly lose this extraordinary artistic culture that we do have in this country. There is uh, a point there actually about, you know, sort of people making ends meet for the short term. Can they have something to go back to? What are they doing in the meantime? Which is something that Ada has been working on. Um, I don't want, I want to sort of stick to this topic, the idea that you work across digital and live and local and, and large scale. Um, do you think the relationship between online offline is, is going to change in the next say five years? Will we see less, live culture? In some ways I think it's too early to tell. What we also saw were sparks of ingenuity. What we also saw was incredible selflessness, especially on the digital platform, which, which has often been berated as a very negative 
echo chamber space in, in many ways. Um, so I think we have to give credit to the digital world to a certain degree and everyone's turning to digital in a moment of need and anxiety. And I think digital did a lot of good. We were able and, and arts organisations of all shapes and sizes were able to go online, share work, show work, um, make work for other people. I heard just yesterday actually that a collective of artists from the Fontaine community in South Tottenham made a uh, Spotify soundtrack to raise money for the Burning Ground Arts Centre, which is a visual arts, a theatre based uh, organisation in uh, Tottenham, uh, because they're, they're really struggling at the moment. And that was completely selfless. That, that was a gesture that was unexpected and has just gone live with, with a, a very selfless desire behind it to be of help to the local community. And I think digital has really helped speed that process along for people. Um, the immediacy with which we can reach people with digital is really important. Having said that, I totally subscribe to Gillian's point about congregation. The arts are able to bring people together where there is no need for shared language. There is not an, even a need for a shared understanding of what you're seeing, witnessing, listening to. Um, it is an incredible power. It's why I work in the arts, the, the ability to reach people that you might not otherwise reach, the ability to share an experience. And that desire for congregation, I think, by society will remain irrespective of, of the advances of digital over, over this coming period. I think arts organisations will become much more savvy about how they use digital to augment what they're trying to do, what they're trying to say and how they show work. And hopefully in an ideal world, we will, we will have we will have a digital world which is a complementary world another public sphere another public space to use and engage with alongside other more physical manifestations you're all aware in one way or another that we have this borough of culture program um, across london waltham forest i think did a brilliant job with the kickoff and actually i'm aware that towards the end of it they they um, re-channeled some of the funding they had left towards COVID and community support work and so forth. Just a short comment on the value of something like a borough of culture. Is it meaningful? What do you think it, it can do? I think the value more broadly of the borough of culture is that out of nowhere, it created 32 boroughs of culture that thought culture might be important. So suddenly these, these uh, ideas were formulated and conversations were had. So. Um, for those of us who were working in boroughs without that didn't get the borough of culture, culture had stuck its head up above the parapet and we could grab onto it and then start working with it. So to that extent, I, I, I think it, it has been very useful. Uh, for in the lower Lee, we based it on fashion, on the basis that fashion belonged there. Many of the local community worked in it. There was a latent skill base, especially from the first generation um, uh, immigrant population. Um, and there was a there was a cultural identity going back to the cultural identity question we were talking about before. There was a cultural identity in the place. So actually bringing into that an institution as we did, like the London College of Fashion, and linking it with that gave it scale and uh, linked into uh, City Hall and, and wider policy, but had uh, made sense to the people on the ground, worked with the practitioners that were working both from their front rooms and from the small studios as well, and plugged into an identity that made it all feel cohesive. And I think that's the trick. It's about balancing those two things. So completely right. Spaceships never work uh, and simply, simply crush the people who are there and don't feel authentic or connected at all. 
and yet you do want to value these institutions and the agglomeration you've talked about and the and, the, and those broader connections to to the rest of the sector if anything what what kind of one thing would you want to see coming out of this um, to the good many of us become uh more creative during lockdown i dusted off my accordion for the first time in 10 years much to my family's dismay uh, but other people have been painting and writing and reading and, and watching films etc so there's that sort of literal creativity but next to that i think we've been behaving more creatively in how we have managed our our work life and our home life and um and what i want us to do is hang on to both that literal creativity so the activity in that way but also the way of thinking and what i'd love to happen is that we take those forward both as individuals and communities and make sure that that makes us more open to protect the extraordinary cultural treasury that we have in this country ada what's your what one thing do you look forward to sort of a tight single idea I don't want us to forget that households and the way that they are structured in some instances just are not suitable to having multiple people of different generations all living in the same place, trying to work, uh, not having outdoor space, not having access to green space, not having a lively public realm, not having the amenities you need close to hand. Because the second something goes wrong, that's when you notice those things missing. And then as soon as it's fixed, you forget about it. I just don't want us to forget and I want us to employ our creativity and our imagination as we have done over the six months to deal with the problems we have by reaching out to neighbours, by reaching out to councils and government and by reaching out to one another and including our cultural institutions to find those solutions we need, but for those solutions to not be temporary. I think we need to think, we've seen the systemic breakdown of a lot of our art sector, largely because the financial ecology in which they sit is really uncomfortable and has been for a really long time. Gillian, what are you looking forward to most? Well, it would be easy to say um, that I uh, am looking forward to welcoming people back to the place that is the South Bank and welcoming artists and people so that they can bump into each other, interact with each other and people can have great experiences of art. Um, what I won't be saying, as um, has been said by, uh, by both uh, Paul and Ada, is that I want to get back to normal um, because uh, there has to be, we, I really totally agree, we have to have learnt from this. Um, we have to really talk to people about what they want from the big cultural institutions and also really find a way that we can ensure that everybody in a city like London benefits from the fact that it is this great cultural meeting place. Perfect. Thank you so much. Um, thanks to all three of you. Very great to have your time today. And it was a wide ranging discussion, but I think we covered a lot of useful points. And there's a little bit of optimism for how we move ahead in terms of meeting challenges with innovation and creativity. Um, thanks a lot. And uh, we'll catch you on, on the other side live. There is a lot to consider in that conversation. Clearly some room for optimism, but also some things to watch out for and some things that we need to do as organizations and individuals. For now, we hope you'll check the website at www.futureoflondon.org.uk. Um, there are resources there on this page. There are also resources for the Learning from Crisis program and other City Bites podcasts. For now, I'm Lisa Taylor. Thank you for listening, and we hope to see you out there somewhere soon. Goodbye. <laughs>